I was really depressed. I was very scared. I felt like a complete imposter because I'm in a publicly traded company with no college degree, and they think I'm just this really smart person who built a school and sold it, and I'm very successful. But I kind of totally felt like an imposter and had a lot of anxiety that I'm going to be discovered and kick me out, and I'll be humiliated. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Dr. Sabrina Kay, to our show today. Sabrina is a serial entrepreneur, investor, fashion designer, philanthropist, and educator. Sabrina moved to America from Korea at the young age of 18 with her family to create a better life. She was a recent Korean immigrant, barely spoke a word of English, and was working as a janitor with her family to make ends meet. However, education was incredibly important to Sabrina. So she applied to college, but ended up dropping out shortly after because she learned she was pregnant and immediately became a single mom. However, in less than a decade, she founded the Art Institute of Hollywood, grew it to one of the big four fashion colleges in North America, and sold it for eight figures, making her a multimillionaire in her 30s. Although she had more than enough money to retire, she decided to go back to school and pursue the education she always dreamed of. While earning her MBA and PhD, Sabrina continued her entrepreneurial journey by founding and selling multiple businesses, including a community bank, which she sold her first foundation bank in 2008, and an accredited graduate level college institution, which she sold to a private equity firm earlier this year. We're excited to jump into Sabrina's story today and learn more about how she rose up from a poor immigrant single mom working 120 hour weeks to becoming one of the most well-respected businesswomen, tech educator, and philanthropist in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. It is such an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, there's so much I want to cover today, but I would love to start with your origin story. You grew up in Korea and you mentioned your mom was the typical tiger mom and your dad was a hopeless romantic. How do you think your family dynamics have really impacted and shaped who you are today? I think I was a kind of timid and scared child with a lot of anxiety growing up. The dichotomy of my parents you mentioned and the country I grew up in may have contributed a lot to my anxiety. South Korea, when I was growing up, was very repressed and it was like right after the war. I think South Korea may have been the second poorest country in the world. So it's amazing to think about it is the 11th economy in the world now in, in like 50 years. When I was growing up, the virtue and value of a woman was to remain a virgin, then become a great wife and outstanding mother. I was raised to be that super virtuous wife, and that was all my education. I went to an all-girls school, was allowed was not allowed to speak to any boys until I'm ready to get married when I was 18. Uh, Televisions and movies had no scenes showing any sexual innuendos. I've never seen anybody kissing because kissing in public was misdemeanor. And policemen were walking around with, with measuring sticks to measure that women's skirt length stayed 10 centimeters below their knees. Wow. So you can imagine, and this wasn't like a thousand years ago. This was about like 40, 50 years ago, uh, South Korea, and um, not even 50. So like 40 years ago, South Korea. Um, and I never thought that I would grow up to be a CEO or even an entrepreneur. That was not what I was thinking of. Wow, it's pretty incredible to just even hear how Korea was at that time and you know how much more traditional it was when you were growing up in the country because so much has changed. But going back to your upbringing, I know you and your family decided to leave Korea and move to America when you were around 18 years old. However, the reality of America once you arrived was very different than what you were expecting. Can you take us back to that moment and share what your experience was like? 
Yeah, the life that we imagined in America was so different than the reality. We thought that you come to America and it's a land of opportunity. We, we're going to live in this great two-way no ticket fences. But my family to this day is so ashamed of what we had to go through when we first arrived in America and we never talk about it. I only talk about it in public, but our family still do not talk about this at all. So if anyone listens, I may be, you know, dis disowned by my family. Uh, my father, uh, who was one of the Korea's elites, became a janitor. So when we came to the United States, we all became janitors. We still had to supplement income um, because we wanted to make it work. So the whole family went to flea market during the weekend at like four o'clock in the morning and set up the whole flea market uh, stand and we sold the random stuff. But it was kind of like it, it, weirdly a good times because we're all together. And then my mother and I both worked at a laundromat washing and folding other people's laundries. And it was, it was not um, really what we expected. I'm sure. And I know you were also enrolled in college at the time. So you were studying during the day and I'm sure working in the evenings and weekends with your family. Yeah, we also had, um, this is a kind of a funny story. My mom decided to buy this sandwich shop that um, it was a failing sandwich shop. So we got a very, very cheap, but there was reason for it. We, none of us spoke English. And we didn't know what mayonnaise was or sourdough. We never even heard of it. We've never seen it. And people come in and says, you know, I'll have a turkey and bacon with easy mayo. That was just unbelievable. And we couldn't understand any of those. They got all mad at us. You know, it was, yeah, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. I was taking two buses to get to the sandwich shop in the morning so that I could do breakfast uh, and breakfast and lunch. And then after lunch, then my I took two buses to get to my school and my parents were out doing other things. And my brothers obviously were in school during because they were in high school. I was in college. So I was able to do afternoon classes and then my brothers would come after to to work. It was um, it was a very interesting time. Well, you can definitely see that work ethic is in your blood and just how hard you and your family work to create a new and better life here in America. So I know at some point while you were in college, you got pregnant and at that time you decided to drop out. And you briefly touched upon this earlier in the interview, but, you know, in Korea, the traditional expectations of women were to stay a virgin and to get a higher education to be, you know, a more attractive candidate for marriage. So clearly your life didn't pan out the way that, you know, you and your family were probably expecting. So I'm sure that was quite difficult for you. But can you take us back to your early 20s when you realized that you were pregnant? And the first time I actually saw two people kissing, like I was saying, was on my college campus lawn. I stood there like an ugly duckling watching two beautiful blonde people openly yeah. exchanging their love like a scene from a movie that I only imagined because all the kissing cuts were cut off in, in Korean movies when, when they were imported to Korea. So it was like weird. And then... I talked to this guy and my biggest fear, which was losing my virginity before marriage, mm -hmm. um, that became reality. And that reality not only was as I was no longer a virgin, but I felt like I became a public trash that no one would ever want. We got married in one month. Wow. And the family wanted to make sure that nobody knew I was pregnant. And it's just kind of insane that I'm publicly talking about it because we work so hard to hide that fact out of shame. Mm -hmm. My mother cried so much when I told her that I was pregnant, that she was just so upset that she didn't even get mad at me. And she would get mad at about 
spilling water on the table, but she didn't get mad at me at all. And I saw my father whip for the first time. So that was not a good time for me. I'm sure it was so difficult and just feeling that shame and insecurity and having to completely change your life and drop out. I'm sure that was not easy by any means. Yeah, but the reason um, the reason why I'm sharing that story is because having my daughter was really the best blessing in my life. And because she came into my life, it just changed the entire trajectory of who I became. And that's the reason why I'm sharing this because most people, when they're, they feel like they're at the bottom and this is close to death, I would rather die. Um, that may be really the time that you can have a rebirth and have a completely different life. That is true. And especially looking at your life, you know, at that moment, you thought you hit rock bottom. You were completely ashamed of where you were in your life, but your daughter ended up being a beautiful blessing, and it was really the start of an entirely new life for yourself. So can you take us through the journey of your next step when you found out you were pregnant? Because it ultimately led you to founding your first successful business. You know, I told my parents who had a store at that time that um, if they come and help me raise my daughter, I would be responsible for family finance. <laughs> so it was like my parents' job because my, you know, my dad is really a great dad. My mom is a great mom. So I felt comfortable that my daughter would be taken care of. And I absolutely had no idea how to be a mom. I was not prepared to be a parent, mm -hmm. but I knew I could work really hard. And I saw like computers, and I loved computers and I, I saw computers coming into the fashion industry. I wanted to teach computers to fashion designers and pattern makers in, in Koreatown because we, by being a janitor, we knew a lot of the building owners and, and uh, people who are working in the garment district. So, you know, when, when that opportunity was given to me, I told my parents that you know, as long as you take care of my daughter, I will work really hard so you don't have to worry about working for the rest of your life. Um, I, I think my mother made a decision that she is younger, she is smart, and she's hardworking. I would let her do that, and then we will just, you know, help her out to to make make it work. So my parents actually worked for me and my first business for 10 years. And they were in charge of household and raising my daughter. Wow, that's incredible. And I'm sure so much pressure in one sense to financially be responsible for the entire household. But going back to this business opportunity that you came across, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you came across it in an ad in a newspaper. So yeah. take us back to that time and how even reviewing this newspaper was the light bulb for you to start your first business. Yeah, I had no idea I wanted to start a business. But my father and I were sitting, I still remember that moment just because there's some moments in your life that you never forget. Right. And this was one of those moments I was sitting after dinner, sitting in the bedroom with my dad, reading the Korean newspaper. And I saw in the article, I think that was an article that was translated from LA Times into Korean. Yeah. And I saw, I saw that article saying that, you know, um, computers are coming into the fashion industry and it can do the drawings and you don't have to change. You don't actually have to make the entire um, clothing to, to do the catalog. And I told my dad, this is really interesting. And then he looked at it and then he said, well, there's a phone number at the bottom. Why don't you give them a call? So literally it was a cold call. And I told him that I really want to see these computers. And my father uh, 
and I went together uh, because I was too scared to go by myself. Neither of us spoke English, obviously, <laughs> but enough to convince them that we are very interested. And at that time, before I went, I did a lot of research. I talked to almost every single Korean um, garment industry people, asked them why they're not using computers. And there were two reasons. One was it was really expensive, and but the bigger reason, because although it's expensive, as long as they can use it, they can get their money back because they'll be saving a lot in the future. But the real reason for them is no one knows how to use those computers. And for designers and pattern makers, for them to take like six months off to take that computer class and for Korean merchants to subsidize that tuition and time, that was impossible. So I went to that computer company and told them, if I can teach Korean designers and pattern makers on the side, how to use the, your computer, you will sell these computers like hot dog, at least in the Korean market. So, you know, at that time, you know, I was very young. I was 20 something and, and I had no business experience. I didn't know how to do a pitch. That's all I told them. Somehow it resonated with the person who was meeting with me, who was the, you know, regional president of, of that computer software company. And he said, if you start a college teaching computers, our software, I will donate the software for you. And it was about a million dollars worth of these computers were about $250,000, 200 to $250,000 at that time using Linux. And it was, you know, gigantic stuff. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't want to lose that opportunity. And I came home and I told my mom and, you know, my dad just translated some of the stuff that we discussed. And we all decided that we take out credit cards <laughs> because we had to get the hardware and get a garage space in Koreatown to open up a school to teach computers to our design, you know, the Korean, at least in Korean, uh, Korean designers and pattern makers. But, you know, I had a kind of vision that this was not going to be a Korean school. It was going to be a great university that we can, we can expand. When you were just starting then, did you realize that the school be could become really big, you know, and ended up being one of the big four fashion colleges. But did you realize the potential at the time? No, I, I, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have a lot more tenacity or I guess not the tenacity, but ambition than I, I, I do. You know, I always start with a very small, humble goal, but a potential and possibility. I love that. Having a humble goal, but keeping yourself open to the potential for the impossible. That's so beautiful. I said I would be happy to teach Koreans, but there is a potential and possibility that this could go nationwide or could go internationally. So I wanted to make sure that English is an international language and all the um, lectures were in English. All the textbooks and all the manual was in English and my faculty wasn't English speaking. But the very first class I taught it in Korean because I had five students in all Korean uh, designers and pattern makers. I learned how to use the computers myself and I taught the first class. But everything was in English. I translated and taught it in, in Korean so that they could understand it better. But that was, uh, that was the very first class. And I know at that point in the early days of the business, it was completely bootstrapped and you didn't raise any money to start this new venture. And you were always looking for new ways to create more awareness for the college. Can you take us back to when the LA riots happened? Because not only was that a pivotal moment for the yeah. city, but also it really impacted 
you personally as well as your business. Yes. And you know, what's really interesting is I would never, ever recommend anyone to take out credit card to fund their first business. That's a horrible way to fund your business. But when you do, you kind of have no options. You know, it's like you have to make it work. I started my, I started a school in March, 1992. LA riot was April, 1992. I remember it was Wednesday night. I was doing my first payroll. I was sitting down in my office and I was calculating my, my last payroll, my first payroll. Then the security guard came in because we were in a garage space on the first floor. A security guard came in and said, you got to leave. And all the students, we, we had to evacuate. I'm like, they can't leave. I don't have any time for them to do makeup class. <laughs> and they said, no, then you have to, you have to go because there's a riot. And I didn't know what riot was. So I, I said, I, I, you know, what does that matter? What does that have to do with anything? They said, there are guns and fires outside. And I literally, when I, when I went outside, I smelled gunfire. So I packed up some stuff and closed the gate and left. And I realized I was the only person left there. And then my mother calls me and says, you know, bring your daughter and we, we need to like go down to Orange County <laughs> because she thought kind of like Korean War, you, you go down south. To, to avoid the riots. So we went down to her friend's house in Orange County. And the next morning, we were all sitting there and watching TV. There was a department store called iMagnet. And my, my school was right next to, right next to that iMagnet store. iMagnet was on fire. It was all rooted. And it was just completely destroyed. The camera did not move far enough to see my building, and I was just paranoid. When I told my parents that I was going to drive up to L.A., they thought I was going to a war zone. <laughs> but I did go up, and I saw just incredible blessing from God because it was a garage space. And because of that, we have the you know garage door. The whole thing looked like a garage. No one got in there, and no one could get in there because it was the pull-down garage door, uh, where I magnet was all windows, and everyone broke the windows and they got in. But small little garage space next to it, nobody even touched it. So all my computers and everything was exactly just the way we left it. I um, called up students out of the six, four came back. Yeah. We started a school again. And uh, what was really interesting is that Korean community did not have a spokesperson. And someone at that time, now I speak enough English to, you know, to communicate. And one of the producer friends that I had in in Korean newspaper and Korean um, TV called me and asked there is a student rally at UCLA they were talking about how unfair media has been with the Korean community because the riot was not caused by Korean American and African American conflicts it was more of a socioeconomical conflict so students were having a rally and they asked me if I could go and um, have a, you know, have, have the uh, evening news uh, for, for that story. They were very bootstrapped TV station. So there was no producer, there was no writer, there was nobody. It was me and the cameraman. We went there, it was pouring rain. I didn't have, we, we recorded a lot of things. I interviewed a lot of people, but we didn't have time to finish all the editing and dubbing the audio. We came back to the station and I had to go live 
while looking at the um, looking at the screen, I didn't even have a script. I just had to say it. And it was really hard, but I was so focused because I really wanted, you know, the story to be told. After that segment went out, everyone gave me standing ovation. I get a phone call from my mom. She said, why is your hair such a mess? <laughs> That's funny. And I told her, well, it was raining, mom. And she goes, you should have gone to the beauty shop before you get on the camera. And I said, we didn't have time. Yeah, mom. no time, mom. And then I hear my dad from the background. He says, we are so proud of you. <laughs> and then overnight, I really became famous. They wanted to give me a segment to do um, weekly weekly interviews of different people. And the next day, Korean newspaper put me on the front as um, new frontiers of new frontier of our next generation. So overnight, I became really famous. And by having the TV shows and radio shows, which I've done for about eight years consistently, talk about fashion, I became kind of like Oprah Winfrey in Koreatown. Wow. <laughs> so Riot really helped me. And where I thought, you know, that it was over, we spent, you know, almost $100,000 to start the business on credit card debt. Um, we couldn't afford to fail because there was like no way we could have done another business or something else. But again, it's really the grace of God, grace of universe that I was able to turn that opportunity um, into something. It was stepping stone for growth. And then, you know, anyone who was interested in the fashion industry, especially in Koreatown, came to California Design College. Then Apparel News heard about it through the relationship with a computer company called Electra. And then they put us on the front page article of mm. how computers are becoming the second competitive advantage and second wave in the fashion industry. And this is the only college that teaches computers because we, at that time, nobody really wanted to teach computers. So we had exclusive rights to teach computers for three years. When that article went out, I just had corner the market. It was like a monopoly because no one else could teach it except us for three years. It's pretty amazing to see the momentum that came from your exposure to television, from being a spokesperson for the Korean community during the LA riots and how that translated into your business. And, you know, it went from a small five person class that you and your parents really funded with credit cards to now being, you know, the most dominant player in the industry when it came to the intersection of fashion and technology. So it's amazing to see all the stepping stones that kind of played in to really building the business from the early days. So fast forward 10 years later, you sold your company for eight figures and your wealth multiplied overnight. You know, what was that experience like for you? And what did it feel like to not only have become a millionaire, but also to have sold and exited out of a company that you really gave birth to? I told this to a lot of entrepreneurs who come to me for advice, especially when they're selling their company first. You know, small little details, I cared so much about how we can sell it and how, how the contract works and how much money I'm going to get. None of that really mattered that much. After it was done, the next day, I didn't have my identity. I didn't have my business card. It was like weirdest thing. Um, and I actually became the CEO of the division called Special Projects for Art Institute. Working for a publicly traded company was a completely different experience than being an entrepreneur. It was just a completely different experience. It was not a bad experience, 
but it was a very different experience. And that really motivated me to go to um, go to uh, go back to school. And also, my mom was very scared that she said, "You don't have a college degree. They will find out. They will find out someday. You know, somebody will find out you don't have a college degree, and you gotta go back because if you know you really didn't have any real job experience, and you may not ever get a job again." Um, so she was really scared that I may not last in this publicly traded company forever, and no one would ever hire me. And so she really encouraged me to go back to school. And then I realized, you know, I didn't really speak the business language that everyone, you know, understands because I never really went to business school and I never really understood. I just worked really hard. Um, USC, you know. It's just another miracle. If you think about all the miracles, only miracles happen when you're at the bottom. I was really depressed. I was very scared. I felt like complete imposture um, because I'm in a publicly traded company with no college degree, and they think I'm just this really smart person who built a school and sold it and i'm very successful but i kind of totally felt like an imposter and had a lot of anxiety that i'm going to be discovered and people will kick me out and i'll be humiliated so i really wanted to go back to school and usc accepted me into an mba program without an undergrad so that was really the beginning of my academic career I had no idea that I would go all the way to the doctorate program and do another master. I mean, I was just happy to get a bachelor degree from somewhere. Um, my mom even told me that, you know, you getting a bachelor degree is just so far out that it may be faster for you just to start a college or, you know, put a bachelor degree program at Art Institute. And just... <laughs> you know, rather than you, you, yeah, and then give yourself a bachelor degree, then just going going for another four years of school because, you know, you just will not be able to go to school. But um, when when I was in, accepted to the MBA program, I just couldn't believe that was happening. And when when it did, it was um, it was um, like I I wanted to do well, but I was also really scared. I uh, hired five tutors to help me to take the GMAT to pass so that I can get into USC. And then I had five tutors to help me with the finance and stats um, that I had no, no background. There seems to be just so many miracles that have stepped into your life. And I think a lot of it has come from your determination and your hard work. But, you know, going back to college and USC, how did that opportunity even come about? Because at that point, like you said, you never finished your bachelor's degree and doing that from your perspective would have taken many years. So how did that opportunity to go to grad school really come, you know, in front of you? I actually wanted to go back and finish my bachelor's degree at Cal State Long Beach. So I went to Cal State Long Beach and asked them to, um, give me like what it takes to finish my bachelor degree. They told me it may take five to six years because I still have my ESL courses that I have not completed. Oh my goodness. So I had to take two years of ESL to get into English 101. Wow. And then all the graduation requirements have changed. So I had to go to school for five, six years. And I'm like, that is an impossible task for me to go to school for five, six years. There's like absolutely no way I could do that. And I told that to my parents and my mom even said, you know, if five, six years in school, that's just, that's not good. That's, you know, she said, well, then it may be faster for you to put a bachelor degree at Art Institute. Together. That, right. And, and just, you know, go to, go to school and give yourself a bachelor degree. <laughs> I love it. And weirdly enough, that I had dinner with a friend who was a carpenter and who uh, built an incredible business. And he said, I got accepted to USC because of my, uh, my accomplishments, but that was, I was the first exception they ever made. 
And I'm like, if there was a first exception, there gotta be second exception. And then I received a, and there was a Fortune magazine article um, about my story. And USC Dean saw that article and sent me a handwritten note that wow. he wanted, he congratulated me. So I was really encouraged and um, went to USC and met with them and asked them if this was a possibility. And then I met with this incredible woman who started, um, who was the executive director uh, at USC. And she really kind of like put a core of why I had to go to school. And we had a great conversation and she told me that, you know, these are the things you need to do and uh, get a great GMAT score, uh, get great references and fill out the application. And I went and got five tutors to take my GMAT and do all the things she told me to do. I got accepted like months before the course started. Wow, that's amazing. And I know you fell in love with higher education. You know, you got your master's and your doctorate degree. And, you know, during that entire process, you were also starting different businesses from a commercial bank, which, you know, ultimately then led you to Fremont College, which we'll talk in a little bit more about. But what I really love about your story, and this is something that you say, is when the student is ready, the teacher will appear in her life. Can you talk, mm -hmm. to, talk to us more about what that means to you? Because it just seems so relevant in you know, every milestone in your life. Yeah. Um, if you think about how things work out, there are mentors everywhere. But they don't become mentors and they don't become effective mentors until the student is ready. And there are so many stories I can tell you. Like, for example... When I sold my business, um, my CPA told me to, uh, to put a certain amount of money into the foundation, start a foundation and put it into foundation so that I, can, I don't have to pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> so that's how the foundation started. So it wasn't like I had this great vision for helping out the world or whatever. Um, but I met one of my greatest mentor of my life. And I, I, I knew him before, but we started becoming really close friends. And when I told him that I started a foundation, he told me something that was really important because I was serving on about 21 charity boards and I was all over the place. I had I was building like 600 rooms and downtown homeless shelter. I was on the, you know, board of American Friends of the Louvre. So you go from homeless shelter to the most glitzy, you know, board meeting in the world. You can ever imagine that when the Louvre is closed, that's where they did the board meeting. Um, and, and being in the fashion, you know, California Fashion Association to after school all stars, which is the inner city program. I, I was literally lost. It was like, um, you know, when you're depressed, some people drink, some people do drugs, work colleagues kind of create more work for themselves. And it is the loneliest disease in the world because no one tells you that you're sick and no one has intervention. They actually cheer you on and they say you're an inspiration, you do so much for the world. You are a great human and you get confused. You keep thinking that, oh, I have to do more. And my mentor taught me that just like business, you need to focus. You have to find what's right for you and you need to focus. So my focus went into education. And when that happened, just like Ingrid, who was the executive director at um, USC when I met her, how she helped me to get into USC. After I graduated from USC, I just did not know 
you know, what to do. I loved being in school. That was my anchor. And I loved being focused on some of the philanthropy that I was doing. Uh, and then at that time, I started a commercial bank with my professor and a business partner uh, who was in commercial real estate. But still, I didn't have a direction. I didn't have the identity that I had before with Art Institute because I was wherever I go, I go people knew I was in the fashion industry. I, I was just so typecasted as a fashion designer and, and a um, president of Art Institute but I didn't have that identity anymore. Still, I was lost. And I told my professor, I had so much fun and I don't want to graduate. He said, well, you passed, you have to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, uh, then why don't you go and get your PhD? I gave him the reference form for Wharton. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, this is in Philadelphia, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, you know, I was kidding. And I said, no, that was a great idea. You need to fill this out for me. And uh, he did. Again, you're talking about mentors. I got a denial letter from, from the Graduate School of Education. And it says, you don't have a bachelor degree we will not be able to accept you without a bachelor's degree. <laughs> and that was like one page denial letter. And I was like, this is really stupid. So I called that, that admissions office that was on the letterhead. And the person who answered the phone was Doug Lynch, who was a founder of the joint program with Wharton and Graduate School of Education. And he goes, oh, you know what? I remember your application. You are very odd. <laughs> the way he would say, I mean, the, that's how he talks. He's like, you are very odd. Your application was very odd. You know, you don't have really the graduate school of education experience, but you own the school. Most people graduate from this doctorate program. They become like a dean of student services or, um, you know, dean of academia but we don't see any of that we kind of thought that was really odd and then you don't even have a bachelor degree but uh, we are starting this new program which is kind of mostly for entrepreneurs and people who are in the learning community all businesses and this is also with the graduate school of um, business which is wharton and i said well the denial letter says you are not accepting me because I don't have a bachelor degree. I'm not going to go and get a bachelor degree. And he goes, well, I'm the founder of the program. So I think I can help you out there. So why don't you make a different application for this program? And I'm like, okay, I was going to go to graduate school of education. <laughs> I can go to Wharton. Are you kidding me? And it's like a graduate school of education denied me because I don't have a bachelor's degree. And now Wharton is going to accept me with, with a bachelor degree. And I'm like, great. So I filled out the application and I got an acceptance letter. Um, so when student is ready, I think a teacher appears because if I didn't have the momentum of keep studying, remember I, I told you I would never go to school for five years to, um, to get my bachelor degree. I ended up going to school for six years to, to get my two masters and two, two doctorate program and commuting from LA to Philadelphia. And it was the best time I've ever had. That's so incredible to hear because it seems like just a theme throughout your entire life is whenever a door is closed, you've always found a way to figure it out and get through that. So, you know, when you were, when you saw that potential opportunity for your first business in the newspaper, you cold called them. When you got rejected for the graduate school of education, you essentially cold called them as well. And that call shifted you to an entirely different program that really changed the trajectory of not only your education, but then also your next business that you were going to start, which was Fremont College. Can you walk us through the journey of how that opportunity came about? Sure. 
it was, I went to this classroom, uh, Steinberg Center, and our first cohort was 13 people. And it was really who's who in the learning community. There were chief learning officer of um, Staples, uh, Microsoft, American Express, Ritz-Carlton, uh, they were all there, um, co-founder of JetBlue. And then there was me, who is, again, according to Doug Lynch, I was odd. And I have these incredible professors. They were, we had like Nigel Payne, you know, who, who was the, the chief marketing officer of BBC flown in to teach us marketing. We had uh, Elliot Maisie, who has been in the learning conference and was in charge of learning conference for all these years. And he knew everybody. And I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what chief learning officer was. <laughs> and I didn't know what learning was. And I was sitting there and just really watching these people talking about how others learn. I saw incredible opportunity that this country has an option. The greatest country in the world has one of the worst education system in the world. But now we have an option. We can use this opportunity of how we are learning together, collaborating and doing projects together and teach our inner city kids so that they can learn. So I went to my professors and I told them that I knocked off Chanel and made a lot of money. Can I knock off Wharton? And then Doug Lynch told me the greatest quote that I use all the time. He said, still shamelessly, we're going to help you out. I came back to Los Angeles and bought Platt College as a shell, had 57 students. And I bought that college so that that can be part of the project that I wanted to start. And my project is going to be the dissertation and this is going to be the laboratory. And I didn't know exactly how it was gonna look, but I knew it was something I could do and I could help make a difference. That was beginning of Fremont College. It's great to hear that Fremont College was your next business because like you had mentioned prior to getting your multiple graduate degrees, you were really lost after you sold your first business. You didn't have any association with anything. You felt like you lost your identity and you really doubled down on education because you genuinely enjoyed it. So to really have created Fremont College from you know your experience going to grad school is beautiful to hear and the success that really came with that. So reading a few other interviews that you've done, you mentioned 2015 to 2017 were one of the worst years of your professional life. And this was when you were the chancellor of Fremont College. And I know there was a lot of regulatory changes in the industry. Can you share more about what happened during those years and really how you overcame just such a difficult time in your life? Um, 2015 was when the regulation changed. We were doing really wonderfully, but I've never really, in this country, I've never felt any prejudice when people talk about women's rights or racial issues. Yes, there are women's rights and racial issues, but if you think America is that horrible, where would you go? This is the greatest country in the world for minority women to succeed. Where would I go? I have no other place to go. Yes, we have room to grow, but America is really the United States of America. Until I became the educator, I have never had any prejudice against me that at least I felt uh, that it was gonna be a roadblock. But as soon as I became an educator, because I own a for-profit college, I was really brushed with one big brush stroke of all the other for-profit colleges. Every industry and every sector has bad apples, and there were plenty of bad apples in the education sector. And it's because regulation allowed 
these colleges to take financial aid and take advantage of some of the students. And that was that was bad. But you know, to change the regulations so that it's targeted for the sector to collapse by going back retroactively and targeting the students who graduated already and looking at their um, salaries and how much they made would be applied towards what the going forward regulation was. So, uh, you know, you can't change the history. If it was just moving forward, it would be completely different. That was called a gainful employment uh, regulation that uh, was going to be implemented. <laughs> and I mean, nobody thought this was going to happen, but 2016, um, Donald Trump becomes a president and, and, you know, it just, the whole world changed again. Um, so 2017, when we thought we were not going to operate anymore, but everyone closed in the for-profit college sector in the 2015 and 16, it, it just like biggest of collapses, Corinthian College that was over three, $3 billion, they closed overnight. Um, you know, ITT, that was a household name that was closed overnight. Almost everybody really closed. But because we're private, we didn't have all the public money. We were able to at least operate. And what I didn't want to do is my responsibility for my staff, my, my faculty, and my students. I wanted to deliver that all the way to the end. So we didn't have a pedal lock, <laughs> we didn't close down the school. We were teaching out the current st students without having any income coming in. So it was very difficult um, because the liability for teaching these students were very high. We were still paying all the salaries and, and everything because we have a contractual relationship with our students until they graduate and also how they can be serviced for their job placement and all that stuff. While that was happening, since regulations were not going to enforce and it was changing, we decided to just go back in the operations. What was really interesting is the government took out all of our competition. So 2018 and 2019, we grew, almost doubled everything. So Funny thing is, um, because we have gone through all the regulation changes, we looked at uh, 2020 election. Do we want to do this again? So I remember being in the board meeting in the beginning of 2019. And I also went to um, the meditation retreat <laughs> January 2019 and have done a you know, whole silent meditation and, and the vision quest and all that stuff. And I decided, you know, I don't need to be in a sector that I must be ashamed to, by doing the right thing. And I don't want to um, keep negotiating with the government and government dictates what my future trajectory ought to look like. So I came back and had a board meeting. We all decided this is not where we want to be for the rest of our lives. When we started Fremont College, I really thought that this is the last business I'm going to do. And this is where I'm going to die. And this is where I'm going to make an impact in the world. Whether we make money or not, that was really not the number one goal. But, you know, education at least was one of the sectors that you make a lot of money by doing the right thing. You know, you you have to be a stellar institution by your accreditation commission. You have to, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's. You have to have a great placement rate. You have to have great student satisfaction. You have to have a great student graduation rate. If you do all of that, you make a lot of money as, as an institution, whether you're for-profit, non-profit, or whatever you are. That's the game that I was playing but it changed overnight. As long as you're for-profit, it doesn't matter if you do all of it. We were College of 
distinction. We are a college of excellence by our accreditation commission. Our student satisfaction on a blind survey was 100% every single year. There's no one who gets 100% student surveys. Um, you know, we had the right job placement and, and graduation rate, but none of that really mattered. So we decided that in 2019, uh, we we're going to look for the right buyer for the for Fremont College. And again, who knew that this pandemic would happen? Um, we sold it at the end of 2019. Wow, what incredible timing. And I'm sure, you know, those three years were incredibly difficult for you, especially as a CEO and leader of a big organization. You know, everybody's looking to you. You're probably worried, like you mentioned, of just maintaining your staff and the organization when all your other competitors were closing down left and right. And even managing your own expectations because this was your passion project and you were thinking that you were going to be part of this until you died. And this was really your last business that you're going to be involved with. What really helped you deal with such challenging times and really stay focused? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, we've all had to pivot. Businesses have had to pivot during COVID. So what were some of the things that really helped you when you were going through such difficult times in your own life? Knowing that this shall pass and quitting is not an option. A lot of people during struggles, easiest thing to do is to quit. And most people do. True leaders do not know how to quit. They understand how to pivot so that you have a different business if the business is not working. You, and true leaders also understand how to lead with grace and elegance. But leaders do not quit. And the sure way, the only reason why businesses fail is because the leader gave up. It's the only reason why they fail. Do you have any habits or rituals that you think really helps you have that clear mind? Because like you said, you know, leaders don't fail. And it's so important for all of us to consider pivoting. That is just so fundamental in business in general and in life. So are there any specific things that you do that really help you get that clear mind to really prosper and be an amazing leader? I um, think meditation really helped me a lot. Journaling helped me a lot. And also having a peer group is very, very helpful. I, I you know, coming as a immigrant from different country and without knowing anyone, I became a joiner. I joined everything. I joined all the country clubs. I joined, um, you know, all the peer groups. That is very helpful. Have a place that, and also having mentors that you can talk to, that's also very helpful. But at the end, if you are at the top, it's very, very lonely. Just knowing that that's the game that you signed up for, then, you know, it's just part of, part of the job description. Well, I'm thankful just how raw, open, and transparent you've been about your entire journey through entrepreneurship and through life. And I want to be mindful of our time together, but I want to close with one last question. You know, as someone who has founded and led and exited multiple businesses, are there any, you know, key learnings or advice that you share with women entrepreneurs that you mentor today or women who are looking to make a pivot in their own life? I think one thing that women entrepreneurs really need to know is that all of our insecurities and fear that we have, I think women have more anxiety, insecurities, and, and uh, fear. That is actually our strength because small animals that fear gives you hypervigilance. That's such a special gift. Um, we, we take care of our children as nurturers. We also have a high tolerance for pain. We have tendency to storm really harsh conditions with our feminine grace and elegance. These are all because women have more fear, more insecurities, and more, at least overtly, 
right? Because most men do not say, mm -hmm. oh, I'm so scared. It's more, more women thing. It's, and I'm not saying it's men and women. It's more of a feminine energy. So there are men who have the feminine energy. So even if you are men or women, if you feel you are more insecure, you feel like you are an imposter, you have more fear, I think that is actually your strength. That strength is, instead of being paralyzed by that unfairness, most women know how to go through their life with such great grace and and courage i love that sabrina so beautifully and eloquently said and you know we're so grateful you were able to join us today and i had such a great time chatting with you thank you thank you so much it was really fun talking to you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.